Hey everybody, we are Martin, Robert, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head, rent-free. Welcome to the Snakes and Otters podcast, and thanks for checking us out. As the tagline says, this is a pointless discussion of eternal questions. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. We're excited to introduce a fresh podcast to you. We are calling this Episode Zero. We're taking a few minutes to tell everyone who we are, what we're all about, and why it's cool and different. So, Snakes and Otters is really about three of us, three longtime friends, some 35 years for the three of us. And we've had tons of discussions over the years just about all kinds of different things historical, philosophical, cultural, ethical subjects, religious, sometimes just plain silly. And we always said, that these are great discussions. It's too bad everyone can't listen. Well, now you can. Each of us brings knowledge and experience on lots of different subjects, but whenever we get to talking, it's fun, it's thoughtful, and we think it's always interesting. And that's what we try to bring you every week. Most podcasts out there are usually about one person talking, or perhaps it's about someone interviewing someone else on a particular subject. We found that the art of discussion, conversation, the exploration of a subject, for example, it's hardly being done at all. And with our three voices all put together, we aim to fix that. But first, we figured we ought to tell you about that name. We wanted something unique that we could brand as our own, so we decided to adapt a homemade corruption of a phrase from the Ridley Scott classic, Gladiator. In that movie, we all love it, the Roman officers all say to one another the greeting, Strength and Honor. And after we first saw the movie, the three of us began to greet each other in the same manner. And then when my middle daughter, who was something like three years old at the time, tried to say Strength and Honor to us, it sounded like Snakes and Otters. And so, our podcast Snakes and Otters was born. All three of us kind of came up with different pieces of all of this, and just like Monty Python, whom we all love, was greater than the sum of its members, so Snakes and Otters is the same. We're all three executive producers and writers of the show, but we each all bring different talents and viewpoints to it. So I'm Martin, and I'm the guy who first got serious about actually doing this. I like to put forward a contrarian premise or position and see where the guys take it. I'm the heathen, the pot stirrer. I bring humor and love to illustrate with metaphor, like uh, saying Archduke Franz Ferdinand is like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. We've also got a good knack for circling us back when we wander. And I'm Francis, and uh, I'm the data guy. I, I go deep with all the details. I'm usually the anvil where the ideas kind of get tested. I'm also the enthusiasm guy with uh, naturally questioning nature, I'm very good at phraseology and those $10 words. And I'm Robert, and I try to bring a steady mind, some logic, concrete principles especially. I think I have a talent for turning our talks toward those eternal questions, those eternal principles that we like to talk about. And I'm the hammer to Francis's anvil. So Snakes and Otters is about ideas and questions. Eternal questions, as you can tell from the tagline. Every episode, we tackle a subject that we've come up with, usually spurred by what we read, and we like to explore what is good, noble, or worthy about it. We're always looking for the good, that which is universal and principled, what's true. We consider ourselves imaginauts, that is, 
folks who look to explore the human spirit and condition and how we can always be better. We are questioners, contrarians, and unrepentant cultural critics. We look for ideals and ideas, not causes. In fact, we're pretty much against the idea of causes. They're suspect, they're potentially manipulative, and they're worth questioning always. We're all for the idea that there is objective truth out there, and that objective truth is valuable for all people. We oppose the idea of relativism, and we champion the value of each and every human person. We love to find out new stuff. We like to learn. We aren't afraid to call someone's ideas silly when we see them as such. We're constantly observing sometimes that the emperor truly has no clothes. We also love history passionately, and we love the wolves' what-if questions. How could we have been or how could we have become better through something that has happened or might have happened? We love philosophy and the search for wisdom, and we're all about understanding ourselves and our place in the universe. We also love pop culture. We know our, sel- our best selves can be found within it if we look hard enough, and we love to tease that to the surface. We're also comic book guys, Star Trek fans, science fiction aficionados, and lovers of great guy movies. We're lovers of language. Francis's $10 words, my metaphors, Robert's always finding the right way to express our ideals, and we believe in the power of words. We love books, great thinkers. We love inspirational quotes and words to live by. We also believe in heroes, and we believe in putting them forth. Those, those great models, whenever we can find them. We love individuality, honor, nobility, principle, dignity, respect, and we believe we can find them all over if we just explore. We also believe in relationships. They're the founding principle of the human experience. For us, history is not just about dates and events. It's a record of human relationships and the decision-making and what's influencing those decisions. We love characters. We love those larger-than-life folks, both fictional and not. We love good stories, and we love analyzing what makes them good and worthy. We also love bourbon, too. In every episode, we try to feature a different kind of bourbon, a different brand, of this warm and wonderful and thoroughly and uniquely American and Kentucky creation. It is the liquid fuel which drives our discussions. And finally, we love humor. Good humor and fraternal silliness, that's one of our hallmarks. Because discussing eternal questions should always be, first and foremost, fun. So do these things sound interesting to you? Check us out as we explore the human adventure week after week. And please tell your friends. We promise some fun and some deep thinking. And what could be better than that? All right. I got something for you guys that I think you'll you'll dig. Um, I've been reading... To Rule the Waves, How the British Navy Shaped the Modern World by Arthur Herman. And right off the bat, something that surprises me is that there is a religious dimension to the growth of the British Navy and how it came to be the most powerful one in the world. Um, Let me ask a question before we start. uh, Just to interrupt here. Uh, does this religious dimension have to do with uh, sending the uh, the smaller British fleet at the time against the Spanish Armada? 
because that was very much seen as a Protestant versus Catholic exactly thing. Yes, and but it's it's more even than just that. It's the entire idea and the entire growth of the British Navy. The the start, the impetus, mm-hmm. it has a religious dimension. <laughs> Would this be something to the effect of they are the only Protestant power around? Right. And they see themselves as their duty to spread the virtues, shall we say, of Protestantism in the face of their two greatest naval rivals are hugely Catholic. Uh, because the uh, French French kings for a long time were simply titled His Most Catholic Majesty. Uh, and Spain is well known, of course, for having uh, expelled the Moors uh, from Al-Andalus. So they have a long history uh, from around the you know around the 1400s of being expressly so. Mm-hmm. You guys, you nailed it exactly right on the head. Um, the book talks about a, an author named John Fox, who um, began this idea of Elizabeth as the savior, and not, savior is probably a strong word, but she is the exemplar of the Protestant cause against the, of course to them, the forces of the Antichrist in the in the shape of the Pope and Philip II of Spain as his servant. Um, it was a very powerful book that he wrote um, about the, the, what they would call the Protestant martyrs that... This is John Fox of Fox's Martyrs. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. very much. Okay. Um, but what's interesting to me is how influential that book becomes to all the early sea captains. Hmm. Drake, Martin Frobisher, and all of these guys are all familiar with it. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, thing you bring up here, because I've never really thought about the religious aspect of this, but when you think about uh, the history of uh, uh, the Catholic-Protestant divide, um, for anybody who, who follows history knows that what may have started as an attempt to reform the church, which was only the one church at the time, very quickly was co-opted into a political revolution. Exactly. Uh, especially in the Germanies. Yes. Remember, at that time, it was the Germanies, <laughs> plural. Right. Yeah, there, was uh, no, there was no united. Right. Uh, at best, a loose association with being the Holy Roman Empire. Right. And even that was still uh, mostly the Germanies. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at on land... Uh, the, the the Protestant versus Catholic thing was very much Northern Europe, uh, Southern and Western Europe. And most of the Protestant nations had no navy. Uh, Sweden had a bit of a navy. Uh, Den- well, Denmark... It's, it sank half an hour after they launched it. Well, the, the one did, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I forget the name of it, but yeah, that the Vasa. One, yeah, the Vasa. Yes, the Vasa. The Vasa. It uh, sailed. It was, uh, what is it like, fifteen hundred feet and, and, and sank, sank like yeah. a stone. Yeah, as a big ship. That's why it sank. Yeah, um, but the um, uh, the the Germanies the, they weren't united. They were um, most of them were landlocked. Uh, they were a river power. If anything, when you want to talk about naval uh, issues, uh, the Austrians, of course, they were. Uh, landlocked, uh, the Austrian part of the uh, Holy Roman Empire. The Italy's, because again, we're talking Italy's, uh, yes. you know, the city states. The papal states and, uh, city and the papal states. states. Yeah. 
you know, they were concerned about what was going on in the Mediterranean more than anything else. Uh, so they were concerned more with the, uh, the, the, well, we would call them Turks today, but they wouldn't call themselves Turks, the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, the only real naval rivals to England would have been France and Spain. France and Spain. Yes, uh, which you see quite often because, the, of course, the Spanish Armada being uh, the most notable. But my interesting question in this is, you're speaking of the early naval period. Yes, is the very correct? beginnings. Very beginnings. When you, when you talk because about moving from the Tudors, the start of the Tudors, mm -hmm. and, and Henry VII, Henry VIII, mm -hmm. the beginnings of the Navy, the beginnings of understanding they had to organize the Navy, mm -hmm. then, of course... Edward the the interregnum, I guess, of Mary. So then you have this the reversion back to a Catholic state, and then Elizabeth. Right. So Which solidified the, the the full Protestantism really didn't come into effect until Elizabeth's long reign. Right. And that's the when stability. Most, well, that's well. Stability is a great word for it if you're Protestant, <laughs> but if you're Catholic, it would have been more like a being a terror. That's when most people fled or were killed. You, it was illegal for priests to be in the, in the country. Uh, it was illegal for them to celebrate Mass. She finished uh, what Henry started. It's correct. She yeah, basically, oh, very much. Uh, Catholicism was stamped out, ultimately. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, how, that's why by the time she's finished, there's nobody to object. They've either left or they've been killed. So well, they're, they're and, firmly Protestant by that time. And all the, you know, the property and capital that could be used to resist is gone as well. That's correct. Yes, Henry and uh, Henry started that mostly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that he, I think Yeah, the dissolution of the monasteries took place in the in the 1530s under Cromwell. Right. Uh, this is after Thomas More's death, which would have been in 1535. So you're talking about really within by 1542 it's done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, and that's, it was that's very remarkably Henry brief. Yeah. Uh, because uh, by yeah, 1540, fifteen forty seven, Henry is dead. So it didn't take very long, actually, at all, for this enormous wealth, uh, both in land and in actual wealth, gold, etc. Because uh, there was a lot there. Uh, oh, yeah. Everything was reclaimed and became crown property. Movables, as they would have probably called that's it. exactly it. Interestingly enough, Scotland was originally thought to be a haven for Catholics. Very soon turned to Methodism. By the time the, uh, the early... Calvinism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is basically by the time the, the 1600s are well underway, they're firmly Protestant as well, which is kind of strange. As a matter of fact, they are more rapidly anti-Catholic in many ways by the, by the Thirty Years' War than uh, many in England. Uh, because by the time you get to the Thirty Years' War, which is the 1615 to 1645-ish, 1618 to 1648, uh, you've got uh, quite a bit of, of uh, leniency, for lack of a better term, with the Stuart kings. Because, uh, you know, Charles I marries the French queen, who is, of course, Catholic, uh, and is very much high church. But I think we're going kind of far off the, yeah. the topic here. Yeah. But well, I mean, I just, I'm just, this is awesome because you, again, you, I knew you would nail right into this. But I, I was, again, just stunned at this intersection between the politics of it that we've kind of always been familiar with, you know, the Spanish Armada and the 
okay, so then that means the Spaniards are basically no longer have access to the New World, and the New World becomes English. But there's a real religious zealotry to the start of the British Navy. Very much so, and it it was and it was not just then the in the, the navy was just one aspect of it. Of course, it was the politicization, if you were, of religion, not yeah. necessarily the other way around. Basic because one of the reasons Protestantism was touted by Henry as being the point is no foreign prince shall tell us how to interfere in our succession. So religion basically became political. Well, it becomes a path to power. That's correct. Well, let, let's not lose sight of the fact that we're talking about what is essentially a time period at the start of the Renaissance. And there has really, since the end of the... Well, there has never been a time until modern times uh, when religion and politics were separate. You know, the Roman Empire, the, the, the emperor was a god, uh, you know, all or, you know the and original dictated the worship of other gods and as dicta- well, yes. basically yes the early Even, Christians were considered atheists because they did not worship the Roman gods but you know and, and early laws they're all based in religious ideals mm-hmm. and really all good laws are if you think about it, but that's again another discussion. <laughs> Even in time, that's okay. Months. That's the whole point. Even but that's the whole point. So we're going all over the place. Yeah. And that's so I, I would I would not go so far as to say that it was the politicizing of religion or the or the other way around, however you want to talk about that, so much as, again, I think it goes back to how the, the again, what I jokingly call the Protestant revolt uh, plays out. Uh, it, it's an excuse for solidifying political power. Mm-hmm. Now, in England, yes. being yes. an island nation, it's a lot easier. It's a lot harder to invade. I mean, heck, even Hitler didn't invade England. And, you know, he had much better army than, than you know, the Germanys in, in the 1600s. Uh, so in, in, e- in England, it probably was a lot easier to do that because you didn't really have all these factions. Uh, but, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's an excuse to solidify your power, not so much using religion as a, as a tool. Because religion was subsumed and consumed by politics. Um, Co-opted, if it were. It was, a, it was a very useful tool, as you say. Yeah, I mean, you you could make that argument uh, very much. It, it be, it, let's put it this way: uh, we would call it the causa belli. Very much so. Mm-hmm. And, pr- and proof to this issue will be, and we're getting ahead of ourselves slightly, but you're talking about the early part of the British Navy at the beginnings. Right. By the time of Napoleon, it's all over and done. Oh yes, because Napoleon is by no means there's no religious issues betwixt them. Right. Yeah. That's this, all. This is state versus state. Yes. This is economic power versus economic power. This is imperial power versus imperial power. Um, well, and very much the post-revolution France, even of Napoleon, is not exactly friendly towards uh, any religion. Any religion. That's correct. Very Catholic. anti-clerical. Very yeah. anti-clerical. So I mean, that's part. Well, of... most revolutions tend to be. Yeah. And it, Although they, and but they did. They, they they did recognize though the place of that. I mean. Uh, the Pope was to have crowned Napoleon, although he decided to do it himself, of yes. course. Well, uh, the, the, the state coexisted within religion, within the religious uh, backgrounds at this time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think Mostly you could say that, that Napoleon pulled back from the, very much so, from the terror. Very much so, because that's when uh, a lot of the, one of the reasons that Kentucky 
and the United States and Maryland and all those Catholic havens were that is because French priests left France during this time because for once they had left already left England. They'd gone to France where they thought they had found a haven. And during the revolution they found themselves, you know, in again in fear for their lives. So they came here. Yeah. That, that that's, that's probably exactly one of the yeah. reasons that's because that's where all the French that's and, where all the priests right. were. And and again in our they study French, of history French trained. generally we always see these developments as political. Um you know military in history is, yes. yeah in school Mi- military history is political history so the, the that's again the interesting intersection that I've hit with this book is wow this has this very huge religious dimension. how intentional was this this creation of the British Navy as a tool of spreading the Protestant faith was it very very, intentional? very yes so that's very, part okay. of the case that he's making okay. here uh, again it was seen as a way to protect Elizabeth. Yes. It was done in her name because she is the exemplar now of the forces of Christ in their minds, again, against the Antichrist, which is uh, represented by the Pope. Well, they also recognize the fact that Protestantism, while it may be solid in England, is by no means a done deal on the continent. It could easily be snuffed out. Mm-hmm. They see themselves uh, as potentially... Not I don't know if I stuffed would, out, but marginalized, perhaps. I would yeah, argue I that, in, in this sense, um, By because the of the term, nature though. of the Holy Roman Empire mm-hmm. being, I don't know, there was, going back to my days of uh, t- uh, studying under Maggie Mahoney at, uh, at university, although it was college then, uh, something like over 500 electors of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, that's imperial cities. Uh, as well as principalities mm-hmm. and counties, the, the small and, states, and yeah. <clears throat> so, every one of those would have been. This is a time when the ruler. Uh, this is one of the early uh, um, uh, compromises between Protestantism and Catholicism. Is that the ruler gets to decide what religion his people will will uh, follow? So, depending on the the notions of any particular successor to one of uh, in one of these electors in the Holy Roman Empire, they could go from Catholic to Lutheran to Calvinist to you know, whatever uh, and back, all within one person's lifetime. And so, a lot of the people I think kind of got divorced from the whole idea. You know, the princes are going to do what the princes are going to do. Uh, but <clears throat> I think as far as being able to be snuffed out. I, I don't know. Because I think from the very nature... By, uh, by 1600, when Elizabeth died, that is correct. There was no danger at that time. But you have to remember, Elizabeth reigned for almost 50 years. and that's In I, the early days of her, particularly in the days of the Spanish Armada, it damn, came well damn close. Well, in England it certainly would have, if the, if the Armada had, been, had not been that defeated. That is correct. They were the only major power at this point that was Protestant. Um, the Germanys and the few other places like that could have easily been surrounded and overcome if they could right. take I this mean, one that's, down. That's, that's the whole point, point of the. That's, that's the whole point of the armada. Point of this is Philip II is very close to master of the world. That's great. He is master of Spain, master of Portugal. By he proxy, ha- yeah. He has combined their fleets mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. 
and has overrun the Low Countries, essentially. Yes. He has a skilled and seasoned army with a good leader. He has high-quality Navy. The place where the... And he sees himself as a defender of the Catholic Church yes. as well. Yes. So, England has no serious army. No colonies. No... Um, and so they very much see not only his defeat, but again, this idea that if we can defeat him, then the new world becomes ours. And it becomes, it should be ours. We are the truth and the light, and we are the representatives of the true Christ. So we should be in control of the new world. Um, which, it's, you know, so it's a very interesting setup going into. Yeah. The Armada and the near invasion of, of England. Which, it's, it's a segue question, but it's always been one that I have uh, pondered as a, as a really incredible what if. Uh, if Henry, with his first wife, or even his second wife, or maybe even his third wife, because I forget which one it was that caused the, uh, the break with the Pope. Uh, uh, it was between the first and the second. It was between the first and the second. And okay. Berlin. Okay. So, uh, if that first wife had produced a male heir that lived... There would not have been a revolution, religious revolution. Exactly. Yes. In England, if, so it would not have been of the type we saw. Uh, Henry was a great defender of the faith. He even wrote a book uh, defending the seven sacraments. Well, presuming Thomas More time, didn't write it for him. Well, I, I, as as More himself would say, it was first to last King's pro- own project. But he did answer certain questions for him. Uh, however, the the Protestantism tide was looking for a haven. Uh, Henry may or may not have done so. I don't believe truly had he had Catherine of Aragon had just let's just make it simple the 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 male heirs that she bore because she did bear him too. Had they survived and continued forward into life, Henry sooner or later tired of her big time. I do not think that even if she had had legitimate heirs, he would have not found a way to break. Well, however, plus he didn't like being told what to do. Well, anyway, that's part of it. But, well, but the he, reason, if you if you if you study that story, if you really want to know why he chose Protestantism, it wasn't in his nature to do so. That was Anne Boleyn. That was absolutely Anne Boleyn. She was the one who's co-opted. She was the one who read the books. They were forbidden, but she, you know, hey, she's Anne Boleyn. She can get away with it. She read it. She's the one that brought it to him and said, you know, you want a way out of this problem you've got. You can't get rid of this wife of yours. Read this book. That's how it started. So if you take, if you want to remove a player from the chessboard to change history, she's the one. Irony would, of ironies. Without her, there's no Elizabeth. Well, the in, but see, you're presuming that with a male heir, he needs to get rid of her. He's the king, king of England. He doesn't need to get rid of his wife to sleep around. Well, that was always well. He he was doing that anyway, right? He was well. Yeah, he needed to get rid of his first end. wife to get another wife to produce a living male heir. So again, it goes back to my point: is if he had, if he'd had a living male heir with Catherine, he could have gone around, kept on sleeping with whoever he wanted, and everything. He, there would have never been a need to read that book to get out of a situation because there would have been no situation to get out of. Uh, well, yes and no. If falling for Anne Boleyn who really is the crux of all this, she would not tolerate being his mistress. Because that's all he wanted from her. 
And she says, hell no, you will make me a queen. All right, or you ain't getting it, Charlie. And he didn't for a long time. And it really wasn't a matter of whether or not he had a male heir or not. Really didn't matter. He wanted her. Remove her. Is there, anybody, yeah, is there anybody a, else that would have taken that, taken the mantle on that she did? Was there anybody else as forthright and as unbelievably ballsy as she was? The answer is probably no. Well, but he had the people in his orbit, though, the, in, the intellectual people in his orbit that brought him there were, were influenced as well. Oh, absolutely. They were Protestant influencing... And again, I think they had to be. only once Anne allowed them to be. Yeah. Because she was able to get him to bring back into the country or allow into the country or allow to rise those individuals like Thomas Cramner and a few others yeah. Yeah, in order to become in positions of power that were Protestant sympathetic. Well, it had to be more than just that, though, because almost no bishops and priests didn't join Henry. That is an astounding thing when you think about it. So that influence had to have been there, uh, or at least a lot of willingness. Now, whether that's want to stay in good favor of the king, uh, poor intellectual and religious formation, uh, if you're a Catholic, that's how you would look at it, or whatever. Um, Why did the bishops knuckle under? Right. Well, that's, that's exactly the way... Uh, the line reads in uh, A Man for All Seasons, uh, and there were very few that, that protested. Uh, Bishop Fisher, St. John, St. John Fisher, Fisher. Uh, being the most notable that did. Uh, the issue is, you're right, there was a weakness as regards to the faith in there. There was a corruption and a secularization of the church. Woolsey himself was a cardinal and also Chancellor of England. The two... As you mentioned earlier, it nowhere was state and church more seamlessly blended than in England at that time. They mm-hmm. were essentially the same function. He was Richelieu before Richelieu came about. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and it, and, and a, he was a, the state in many ways. Yeah. Uh, so when it's easy for you to find when they're already a wing of the palace, it's another line from Man for All Seasons, then you'll find that it's pretty easy to say, okay, you like all this stuff you've got. The only way you get it is through me. And he's right. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the reasons. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly the an, selfishness, an, an ego at play with Henry VIII, again. And he's he's not going to be told what to do for long. Even with a male heir from Catherine of Aragon. That's correct. Well, he, Anne Boleyn tried, and she he, lost her head eventually. Yeah, I mean, he's eventually going to see that, or feel that, hey, I have a path to power, and and it needs to be away from Rome. So, let me pause for just a moment. I need to pour myself a, another little shot of bourbon. So, listeners, you hear that glass? Woodford clink? Reserve, by the way. Yes, good stuff. Never drink crap bourbon, people. Although, even bad bourbon is still bourbon. And it's better than that stuff they make in Tennessee that ends in EY. That's right. <clears throat> well, <laughs> yes. Anything that is called bourbon that is not made in the great state of Kentucky should be legal to be called bourbon. Yes, not bourbon. That's right. That is entirely I mean, a different a, show. Yeah, entirely a different show. Well, as Anything they, that ends in EY, don't drink. That's from Canada and Tennessee. Horrible yeah. places. As they said in the movie Ford. Great, you've just pissed off an entire country. <laughs> they won't. Tennessee, notice. we don't care about. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, the Can- Canadians will just go, eh. 
Yeah, that's true. They're so polite. They're They'll so probably polite. say, "Oh, I'm sorry we offended you." Yeah. <laughs> As they we're, said, we're the sorry great... you offended us. <laughs> As so. they said in the great movie, Fort Apache, it's better than no whiskey at all. Eh, not by much. So, how long did uh, did it take uh, to make this? So this is even not a, not even a second thought. And here we talked about by Napoleon, it's state versus state. So, how long was this an organized, intentional effort, as opposed to this is just the way things are because this is the way we've always done it? No, I mean it's very much at the start of Elizabeth's reign. Right. Again, this is all it's all pulled into that John Fox Martyrs book. Sure. Um, and again, this that's so widely spread among these uh, sea captains. Right, but how long until it's no longer an intentional thing where you think about it? Okay, right, this is our purpose. This is, as opposed to, well, of course, this is the way we do things. Cromwell was an extremely successful naval commander. That's one of the... One of Which his, one? Uh, Oliver. Yes, uh, slipping forward into the 1600s <laughs> yes. here uh, during the Protectorate. And, that's one, and in fact, he was able to quite literally run circles around just about everybody else. At this point here, uh, so I would say by the time of the Protectorate, it's no longer an, it, it. It's become part of the deal. It's we are a Protestant state now, and that's we don't have to talk about it. We don't have to intentionally uh, go out and worry about it. Ironically, it's who we are not just a Protestant state, but a Puritan state. That's correct. That's right. Which now that did not last, of course. No, and. Uh, um, uh, Charles II was brought back with all due pomp and circumstance. However, he still had had to toe the Protestant line, even though he was a what we would call a crypto Catholic himself. Very much a libertine is also what he was, and he well, yes, you want to talk? Of course, you can go to confession. That's right. <laughs> you think Henry was a horn dog? Charles II put him to shame, yes. absolutely. But everybody liked Charles. He was actually a likable guy. Well, he also brought back a little bit of fun. Absolutely. To the country. He, uh, he was also known for hanging out with actresses, which was synonymous with being a you know, whoremonger that's right. at the time. Uh, he had no legitimate children, actually. Uh, it was only his, it was his, when he passed away, uh, his brother James comes to the throne, who, <gasps> gasp, he was married to a Catholic. Well, they were able to tolerate that until he until produces he a male a heir, male heir. And who is going to be raised Catholic, not Protestant. So that's right out. That was right out. And that's what brings about the what they call the Glorious Revolution. William of Orange comes in, marries Charles and James's younger sister, and there ain't no turn, there's no turning back. No turning back. It's by the end. So then you got the it's Battle done. of the Boyne and the whole deal and that's yes. The abdication and well, that's, and the crowds yeah. have been sitting on the throne ever since. Yep. It's all German since then. That's right. The Scots tried, but well, we know how that ended. Yeah, up. I mean, we could we could go into a whole two episodes about uh, Jacobitism and yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's basically the success of what we had. Yeah, I mean, you start getting me talking about Culloden and throwing all the Scots out of the country into America, and that's why I'm here. And hell, well, yeah, and, you, and our ancestors were waiting for you because we were the Catholics who were already here. Yeah, that left a hundred years earlier. <laughs> Oddly enough, mine were apparently Protestant, but they were here in the early 1600s myself. So. Uh, interesting. We all have roots that go back prior to the revolution. That's right. Which I like that. Yeah. Well, boys, uh, we are uh, near the end of the show. Uh, I think for a first effort, not a bad show. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. 
We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel. Yeah.